What's up, fellas? So before we roll tape, I'm going to go ahead and tell you we are doing something today that we don't do very often. I've only done this a time or two since we started the show, but I'm going to re-air an old episode, pull one out of the vault. And the reason is, the last couple of weeks of my life, I have been reflecting deeply on a lesson that I learned from a guy named Yogi Roth. He was originally on the show, I believe it was episode number 39, so way on back. But I've been thinking a lot about the conversation that I had with him. In particular, when we spoke, he called me out for the way that I was speaking to myself about myself, even just in the middle of a conversation on the podcast. And I've been thinking about that a lot recently. How do I speak to myself? How do I... Um, you know, am I kind to myself? Do I respect myself? Do I beat myself down? And I realized going through a few different things personally and at work, I'm pretty, I'm pretty darn tough on myself, which serves me well in some regards, but also holds me back in a lot of other different ways. But Yogi helped me a lot and he gave me this quote and he said, you'll never outperform your strongest belief. And that is something that I have been thinking a lot about recently. So I wanted to share this conversation with him again. People ask me all the time, hey, if I'm going to jump in and listen to the Dad the Man podcast, where do I need to start? And this episode is one that I send people to all the time. This is you know, easily my favorite conversation that I've been a part of here on the show. So I'm super excited to reshare this one with you. Yogi is such a stud. We talk about all different kinds of things in this episode. Like I said, we talk about the way that we speak to ourselves and you know, what our strongest beliefs are. And just understanding that we'll never outperform our strongest beliefs. We talk about proving yourself right. We talk about Pete Carroll's three-team rules and how to coach Little League teams. We talk about how to leave work at work. And we talk about the importance with our wives, with our children, their need, their deep need to just be seen and to be heard. But like I said, Yogi is such a stud. I'll tell you a whole bunch more about him here. Uh, When we roll tape, you'll hear his whole biography here in the introduction, but I hope you enjoy this one. If you've listened to it in the past, I hope you enjoy it again, and I hope it serves you as much as it has served me. All right, fellas, let's roll it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dad the Man podcast. My name is Brendan Wall, and I am your host. And today, whether this is your first episode tuning in or if you've listened to every show along the way, I just want to thank you so much for giving us your time and your attention. I hope to give you a good return on that attention. That truly is uh, a goal of mine. So I just want to thank you so much. And I also have an ask for you. So if you are enjoying the show, if you're learning anything at all, if you have any takeaways from today's episode, please do me a huge favor and help me to share the show. Whether that's mentioning it to a friend, texting somebody, or just you know mentioning it to someone at work, I just cannot thank you enough for your support. So today's guest is none other than Yogi Roth. In his own words, Yogi is a storyteller seeking and uncovering the humanity and sports around the world. Yogi is a Pac-12 Network's college football analyst, an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, a scholar, a New York Times best-selling author. He's an accomplished coach, motivational speaker, media personality, radio and podcast host, and world traveler, among many other things. The list of award-winning projects in print, film, TV, and radio that Yogi has worked on is too long to run through today. 
which really is a testament in itself to the depth of work that Yogi has created in his career so far. Once upon a time, Yogi walked on the football team at Pitt before earning a full scholarship. And after school, he transitioned to coaching where he joined Pete Carroll's coaching staff at USC, who he credits often as a major mentor and influence in his life. It wasn't until four years into his coaching career that Yogi realized that his love for the game ran deeper than coaching on the sidelines. And he discovered that his true passion was found in going deeper in storytelling and connecting with others around the world. And the rest is history. Yogi is equal parts calm, cool, and confident with an undeniable charisma and a fun, open, and inviting personality. He's a deep thinker with a great perspective on life and has a true gift of articulating his message a true storyteller he is. But above it all, he's an incredible man, husband, and father, and it was an honor to host him on the show. So here's my conversation with the Yogi Roth. And we are live with one of the most intriguing, insightful, and talented storytellers, not just in the world of sports, but in all of media and entertainment across the board. With us today, the one and only Yogi Roth. Yogi, I want to thank you right off the bat for making some time for us today. I know you got a lot going on. You could be spending time, you know, on your craft with your family, whatever it is, but you chose to spend some time with us. So I'm super thankful for that. You know, we, we all love this world of sports, right? We all love everything about it. We love watching the games, but I really love your approach that you've taken to it and dedicated a lot of your career to and bringing out the humanity in sports, telling a lot of the stories that w- the rest of us may not get to hear. So I want to thank you for doing what you do. Thanks again for making some time for us. With all that being said, the one and only Yogi Roth. Welcome to the Dad the Man podcast. Uh, happy to be here, man. Dad the Man podcast. I love it. When I when I saw that come through on social media, I was like, oh, cool title. Like, there's <laughs> there, there's you're on to something, man. So congratulations with your show and th- thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you saying that. So to kick things off, I want to go back in time. Let's hop in the time machine. Tell us a little bit about little Yogi. What was your childhood like? Family dynamic, where you grew up, all that kind of good stuff, so we can get to know you a little bit. Yeah, that's easy, man. I grew up in a tiny town in Pennsylvania. A lot of your listeners, I'm sure, could relate to this. 2,500 people, no stoplights. The only thing that really existed was a ball and playing. And every single day in my childhood, all I have on loop is me and three other friends meeting at the epicenter, which was the playground, and just playing, whatever it was. And, and that that was it, right? And depending the time of year was the depending like which sports star's persona you took on. Basketball season, it was like, all right, I'm Jordan, I'm Burke, I'm Barkley, I'm Bird, I'm Magic, right? It was football season. I'm Rice, Montana, I'm Monk, I'm Kelly, right? Or it was we'd play tennis, and it was I'm Courier, Edberg, Lendl, Chang, whatever it was. Like I can still imagine those moments, and that was really the the basis for me. When I look back on it now, um, I had a cool upbringing in terms of we were in this tiny little town, and my mom was a refugee from the Middle East. My name's Yogi. My brother's gay. Um, none of it really fit except sport. And that became like a refuge for me in this community that I still love because it, it offered me truths on the hardwood or on the asphalt or wherever we were. But when I look back on it now as an adult and you see your community for what it, what it actually is versus the eyes of a child, I'm like, and that was like, like ball really gave me purpose, whatever the ball may be. So that, that was it for me. Sport was the language that I spoke. Uh, and I argue it's still the, one of the languages I speak now. That's awesome. I, that's definitely something I can relate to. That's uh, 
I've heard you say before you roll out the ball and everybody speaks the same language. All of a sudden, everybody can relate. Um, that's something I can definitely relate to as well. So as, as you grow up, I think you walked on and played football in college. Tell us a little bit about that process. What, what walking on in college football is like. Yeah. Well, you know, in high school for us, we were terrible as a school. Like we never won a lot of games. We always competed though. It was like the roster of 20 some players on a football team. And then our class came up that same group of guys I grew up with. And we just had this belief that we could win in anything. And we did. And we mm -hmm. took this team and then subsequently this town on this really cool journey. Well, with that came confidence as I look back on it. And with that came a belief in myself that I could go play at another level. And I can remember being a freshman, getting my first letter. My first letter was Columbia and Princeton. And I was like, oh, if I'm getting these as a freshman, I can play because I played as a freshman. We were a small school or we weren't very mm -hmm. good. And I just set out on this course where I was going to play major college football. And as I got into my senior year, a lot of the schools liked me, but nobody loved me. You know, I wasn't fast enough. I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't big enough. I wasn't explosive enough, whatever. Uh, but I just had this voice inside my head that said inside my heart that was like, Yogi, you, you have to try. And I say that because even in that small town, and I was just talking to my older sister about it when she was visiting a couple of weeks ago in California, like no one said, go walk on. <laughs> like, I just had this voice that was like, hey, you got to take a run at it, man. And I used to close my eyes and say, well, if I go to Ithaca or Delaware or a small school, I can, I know I could ball, but what will I feel like when I turn on ESPN on a Thursday night and see at the time a Big East matchup? And I said, I couldn't deal with it. So I walked on. And uh, for those that don't know, walking on means you don't have a scholarship, but you have a spot on the team. When I walked on, uh, I, I can remember the first day I got to campus. I, I, and I went early. I went in the summer. I was like, I'm going to prove it. And I felt early on that I could play. But what I didn't, what I wasn't prepared for was the realities of a walk on in that journey. So for instance, I walked into the locker room day one and I was like, all right, where's my jersey number? Where's my locker? And I went to the 80s because I was a wide out, nothing there. I was like, all right, let me go to the single digits, nothing there. I went to the 20s and 30s and 40s and nothing there. And I went to the equipment manager and I said, hey, Ox, his name is, his nickname was Ox. I said, hey, Ox, where's my locker? And he goes, well, what's your name? I was like, oh, damn, he doesn't even know me. Okay, uh, my name's Roth. And he looked up page one, page two, page three, went all the way to the back of his list. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, Roth, you're in locker 106. And I've been around football at the time, you know, a decade or so, you know, when I was 18. And I was like, I never saw anybody wearing jersey number 106. But my locker was like way deep in the hood, way in the back. And that's when I sat there at my locker, at locker 106, with oversized cleats, a defensive lineman face mask. And I said, okay, cool. I'm going to commit to being in a relentless pursuit of a competitive edge. And, and, and it just switched for me. And then I became, you know, you know, the guy who was a walk on and got a scholarship and played a bunch of games, kind of that story, story, story that we hear all the time in college football. I got to live that, which was cool and, and something I'm obviously proud of. The relentless pursuit of a competitive edge. How has that stuck with you throughout your life since then? I'd have to imagine when you're sitting there, like you said, wrong size cleats, wrong face mask, far end of the locker room that that's got to leave a little bit of a chip right there. Yeah, I, I always tell athletes now, like my chip was massive, boulder-esque. I was going to prove everybody wrong because even my own coaches didn't advise me to go to pit. I look back on my career now and I, I realize I never really soaked up all the joy. 
Like if I could do it again, and I tell this to high school kids, especially quarterbacks that I work with, I see their Instagram and it's like, proving all the haters wrong, you know, mm -hmm. or come at me now or whatever. And I'm like, dude, just prove yourself right. And I wish I led with that. I, I think a chip can drive you as it did. I mean, bro, I was working two jobs as a walk-on, you know, doing our traditional team workout. And then also, cause I was a bouncer, hard to believe, but I was a bouncer and I'd work out at 4 a.m. cause I knew no one was working there. But it wasn't joyful. It was like just a drive that was probably borderline unhealthy mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. Uh, but but I loved it. You know, I, I loved that drive. I slept with a football from 14 to 22. That was my relationship. I didn't have a girlfriend. I, I just was wedded to the game, as one might say. So I don't think it was I definitely wouldn't recommend that path to people moving forward. But for me, I, I, I just was obsessed with it. I loved studying. I loved preparing. I loved competing. Um, I loved proving people wrong. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't as healthy as it should have been. Now that I look back on my career, that's uh, it's funny you say that. That's something I've been thinking about a lot with myself personally. You know, I'm just kind of I'm building this podcast, right? And I, like I told you before, like I'm the most generic, like middle income, just like average dude ever. And I'm like, I'm gonna go start this podcast, and everybody that I know is kind of like like my inner circle is very much cheering for me. But I know like when I tell other people, they're looking at me like, this guy's nuts. What is like, what is, what does he think he's doing? Um, and I, and I've had that in me a little bit, like I'm going to prove those people wrong. And what I've boiled it down to is like, if I can't have fun while I'm doing this, then the whole, like, what's the point of me really doing this in the first place? Cause I, you know, if I take time to do this, I'm taking it away from my own family, from my own career, whatever it is. So I've kind of in my head, I've used like the negative, like I'm going to prove people wrong. That's like my salt stick when yeah. I like smelling salts when I really need it, you know, like if it's a little bit late, whatever, and I need a little kick in the pants, but you know, otherwise just have some fun, man. Like all the, like the extra hours, the lonely work that we do, let's have some fun with it. And then I, to kind of model that, like this is a dad podcast and now I'm trying to teach that to my kids. So we got a couple rules in the house, rule number one with everything. And it's kind of like the reset in our house is rule number one, have fun. And that's the way I'm trying to lead that, I guess, with my family all the time. Uh, but it, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that's a big point. Because like you said, you see it in everybody's Instagram, you see it online everywhere. And it's, it's hard when that dominates your brain. It's too much negativity. Yeah. It, well, here's the reality of it. If you look at even the science of it. And uh, at the end of the day, that will take you to a certain place, right? It'll, it might drive you to win a bunch of Super Bowls if you're Tom Brady. But I would imagine if you talk to some elite achievers, number one, if, is that the only thing that drives them anymore? And I'd imagine it doesn't. Like at some point, that road ends, right? That salt stick dries up, per se. Mm -hmm. And I just think you have to have more, right? So it's like the over-dramatized question of what's your why, Right, like every freaking podcast in America, you know, ask that <laughs> at some point, which I'm happy to answer. Um, but my point is that, like, I'm gonna put it on you, bro. Like, oh, you said I couldn't. What about now? Like, okay, I got a scholarship. They didn't care. Like, everybody that said or didn't say, like, Yogi should go do it, they weren't like, oh, wow, you got me. They were like, congrats. <laughs> you know, so I, to me, it's it, it was a waste of energy. And now as an adult, like I just went to this men's retreat, which you would have dug, man. It was 18 dudes uh, in Southern California, all in the athletic creative space. And one of the speakers we had was in the high performance industry. And he said, you'll never outperform your strongest belief. 
You'll never mm -hmm. outperform your strongest belief. So for you, what you've said to me twice now, if your strongest belief is like, I'm just your average middle of the road dad. Well, then that's what you're going to be, honestly. But if yeah. your strongest belief is like, I'm a badass who's going to like offer the dad community something that I know we all might enjoy. And I'm going to do it on a level that's never been done before. Right? Like, I, I get where you're saying it's the humble brag. Like, we, we all live that to a degree. But that, that struck me when I heard that chord of like, yeah, that's strong. I'll never overcome my strongest belief. So for me, my strongest belief was I'm going to get a scholarship. My only regret in life is that I didn't try out for the NFL. It wasn't a strong enough belief. Nobody breathed that belief into me. And I didn't even know that 5'11 slot, you know, receivers like myself had a, had a had his roster spot on every team until I started coaching in college. And mm -hmm. I'd meet scouts and they'd say, how come you didn't try out? Damn, why didn't I try out? Because I didn't even know guys like me existed. And so my highest belief I achieved, but man, mm -hmm. I wish somebody nudged, nudged me to make it a little bit bigger. How have you used um, regret, I guess, moving forward from that? Is that? Or have you used regret to steer decisions in your life? You know, it's the, it's the only regret I have in my life. Legit. You know, I, I've been pretty much a cut it loose, let it rip, live on the edge, mm -hmm. right? Like at the edge of uncomfortables where greatness happens, right? Another yep. quote I'm sure is ripped around a bunch of podcasts. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like I've gone for it the majority of my life other than that. And when I came out to LA, I just saw it because I was around Pete Carroll. He became my mentor in my 20s. Talk about breathing life into your life. That's, that's what he did. He breathed possibility into your life at every turn, whether it was me as a coach, obviously, but as a filmmaker, as an on-air personality, as an entrepreneur, as a traveler, as a future partner, like in my 20s, I, I get how fortunate I was to have him mm -hmm. doing that to me daily, nightly. We would both sleep in the office. I was the young runt, and he was grinding, trying to win a third straight national title. That was my first year. Mm -hmm. And away we go, and he still had a, a dramatic impact on me. But in my 20s, in those big-time years, it made me think, God, and I tell this to all my former teammates, I wish you all got a chance. I wish you all had a chance to be coached by, by Pete. Tell us a little bit more about Pete. Are there any lessons that come to mind that maybe you carried with you that you use in your daily life now or lean back on as a, um, you know, now in your life as a husband and father? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you said your rules, it jumped right up to me. Um, the rules in all of his programs, right? Uh, whether it was the Seahawks or SC, um, or I'm sure in his personal life, number one is protect the team. And I think that's pretty cool. Like protect the team, like mm -hmm. protect your brother and sister, protect the dog right? Like protect mm -hmm. yourself, like, and within that comes decision making, right? Second rule is uh, no whining, no complaining, no excuses. I love that. So yeah, we use that in our house all the time. Like, That's our rule number three, right there. Yeah, there you go, which <laughs> is like, hey, don't be a violator. Don't don't make an excuse. Don't be yep. a violator. Just tell the truth. It's cool. If you took a piece of candy, it's cool. Like, just tell me, <laughs> yeah. right, for instance. Um, and number three for him is be early, which is all about being organized. So the, all three of those, especially as um, a broadcaster, they've really impacted me on a huge level because it's your own little team, right? No longer am I on a team that has a roster of 100 plus players and 20, 30 coaches. Um, but ours is like a core of 15 to 20 that travel every week to broadcast games for, you know, a large part of 
September 1 to December 1. Mm -hmm. So all those things protect the team, you know, no, you know, no whining, no complaining, no excuses. Like I try to model those as the analyst, right? As the analyst, a lot of the times, you know, you have the mic a lot, mm -hmm. right? So you can be a tone setter to a degree. And I take that really seriously. So, so that's one. And then two is like Pete's pyramid of success that he created in his book. Um, I use that as a broadcaster. Uh, I put my own spin on it, but the fundamental basis of it, even pre-performance routine for me is all about that. So the example for him, he wants to get every one of his teams called the Seahawks now at the point on game day where they can, they can compete freely, where they can compete in the absence of free, uh, in the absence of fear. Mm -hmm. well, within that is a bunch of steps that they've built up over training camp and practice in the week in preparation. I feel the same way as a broadcaster. So the last thing I do before I even get onto the set mm -hmm. and put my headset on or my earpiece in is I go to the bathroom and I kind of give myself the stare down mm -hmm. in the mirror. And it's like, okay, man, like you ready to rock? And I go through my, my, my basically my pre-performance routine, which is number one, I say, okay, Yogi, you know, you've earned the, you know, you've earned the right to get after it today. And I just kind of start through, I have this little mantra where I just kind of get started and, and it's a blast. You know, like yeah. I, the first thing I say, hey, you're in a relationship competitive edge, right? You've earned that. You're confident in your ability, trust in your preparation. You're going to have an uncommon focus today. You'll know, you be where your feet are. And I'm talking to myself here. Be where your feet are. Hey, have the most fun, right? You're rule number one. Have the most fun in the history of fun. And you've earned the right to compete freely. So let it freaking rip. And then I walk out of the bathroom. And I hope nobody's in the stall if they're hearing me. I'm whispering <laughs> it out loud. But it's that pre-production routine that to me, I, I totally ripped you know, the basis of that from Coach Carroll. That's awesome. Do you have anything like that? Maybe like a ritual or a, I don't know if there's like a little practice that you go through similarly, like before you, I guess, transition from, all right, now I'm broadcaster, I'm working to now I'm husband, dad, I'm in the house. Anything like that come to mind? Yeah, I learned it from a guy who you should have on your show. His name's Kevin Carroll. Um, no relation to Pete, but he's the guy I call on my board of life in my 30s and now 40s. So I coached Carroll in my 20s, KC, Kevin Carroll in my 30s. He wrote a book I have behind me called The Rules of the Red Rubber Ball. Um, total inspiration. And he would always say, hey, leave your work at work, right? Especially when you get home. So what I do often is when I come home, I'll stop. Like, number one, obviously, I'm not on the phone coming in, right? Because it's easy to catch up with coaches or players or whatever as you're coming home. Um, mm -hmm. And I take a walk around the block. And I just kind of center myself to just be like, okay, now let's go in and like kick ass. Like, unless I'm like, I, sometimes I'm sprinting in to make a bedtime, which is mm -hmm. no problem. Yep. But if I have some time, like if I've got an early Sunday morning flight and I landed at 8 a.m. because I got on a 6 a.m. or I get home and I like take a minute to just be like, all right, like be fully connected because you were just away. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's huge for me to go do um, with my kids. Right. And, and with my wife to, to just come in and be there. So that's, that's the first thing that jumps to mind. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I, I do something similar. Um, I have to start doing the walk around the block just to really, really settle it in. Um, I do have a lot of nights though, where I'm coming in and I I'm right on that fine line. When I come home from work, a lot of times it's like, I can come in like right now, or if I wait like another five minutes, it's going to be too close to bedtime. And then I'm going to come in and they're going to get all wound up and then I'm going to be in trouble, you know, trying to avoid that too. Um, but just even have just a pause to say, all right, phone down, like heart open, let's go be husband and dad and, and take advantage of it. Cause it's, you know, it's, a, it's an opportunity. I look at it like it's an opportunity, you know, 
every time you get the chance to come home from work and walk in the front door and your wife and kids are there, like that's a good day. Like no matter what's happened behind you, you just got to leave it and say, I did my best out there. Time to go be great um, at home. So let's take your story a little bit further. So you're, you're coaching for Coach Carroll now out of USC. Um, I know you were there for a little bit. What drew you away from, from coaching and kind of put you on this path that you're on now? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. Um, I fell in love with coaching. Like I fell in love with 6 a.m. to midnight. And I knew I would. Like, I knew I would, bro. I'm telling you. Like, when I was in high school, I can remember watching Syracuse play like it's yesterday. Kevin Rogers is their OC, and they have a shot of him up in the booth, and they say, Kevin Rogers, this guy's been sleeping in the office all week. And at 15, I was like, oh, that's going to be me. Like, I'm going to go be an awesome coach, like, and I'm going to be that guy. And when I came to SC, I was that guy. And I had a chance when my four year run at SC was over to kick out. And every year I'd have a chance because SC was a launching pad. Like, mm -hmm. you know, year two, I went to the Raiders for about a day and Pete brought me back. I was going up with Coach Kiffin, with Lane Kiffin, and he brought me back to really get some quality work, excuse me, with the quarterbacks. And, uh, and I just loved it. I loved every mm -hmm. drop of it. And, but as I looked at Coach Carroll, for instance, or a guy named Pat Rule, who's a lifer in the industry. Mm -hmm. I looked at them and I said, wow, like, look at the impact they're having on players. Uh, look at the cool things their families get to do. But man, they know literally every day of the year what's coming. And at 26, I never really recognized the true rocket ship that coaching could have been. Because right? I saw what it was for Sark and Lane and some of these other guys that are on our staff, Kenny Norton, whatever. Uh, Brennan Carroll is an OC now, uh, Pete's son. It was a true launching pad. But at 26, I sat there and I said, man, I've given at the time like 15 years or so to the game and like truly given it. That uh, I said, I, I just want like other stuff in life. I love football. Mm -hmm. But in you know, in March, I don't want to be doing third down studies. I want to be in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. you know, in June, I don't want to be doing summer camps. I want to be in Rwanda. And I just began to really chase my passion, which was the human side of sport. So I would drop in all these countries and I was just, I'd, be, I'd come alive in a way that I didn't know. And it was hard for me. And I can remember going into the office of a guy named Johnny Morton, who was recently a coach of the Raiders. And I, and I said, hey, I could go to Seattle and be the youngest quarterback coach in the country, I think, at the time. Or I could go to South America and, and just start traveling. And he stops and he goes, did you hear yourself? Like, did you hear your tone? And I was like, no. Nah. He goes, dude, you want to go travel? Go. And it was the first time somebody, and I, and I cherished that dialogue because it was like, yeah, like a lot of the times, we are already saying what we want to go do. Maybe the words aren't matching up, but our energy is already going there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I buy that. So, so that's, that's what it was for me. And now as a broadcaster, if you looked at my call sheet for every game, at the bottom it says, celebrate the game and coach the viewer. In big, bold letters. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm not coaching five quarterbacks anymore. I get that. And I'm not a head coach or a coordinator or who knows where I would be right now in the, in the actual profession of coaching. But I truly believe I coach a couple million people every Saturday on television. I truly, I get, I get to coach the Elite 11 quarterbacks, which is a prestigious quarterback camp every summer. So I get my fix on the field for 10 days a year. Um, and now, as you know, you got your kids, right? I got Little League practice later today. 
and I'm coaching them up on how to get from first to second in the right stance. <laughs> so it maybe it's not in front of 80,000 people, but it's uh, I found a way to get the essence of coaching out of my life. And maybe the form isn't what it once was. What I really love about that story is, um, and I think this is so important because I think most of us are not naturally, I guess, inclined to do this. But what I love is that you really gave yourself permission to change your mind on what you wanted in life. Like, I think when you look at the natural progression of our, just our education system, you know, you, you go to school so that you can go to college so that you can get a job. And then from age 22 till retirement age, whatever, 63, 65, whatever it is, like, it's kind of like, that's what you're going to do. And I think you see people all the time, you have conversations with people and you talk about there, or you hear them talk about other things that they were interested in at different times. And I, makes me think about the story you were just telling about coming alive, talking about taking that trip. But most people, I don't think, I don't know if, if, if it's, if it's a fear or if they lack the courage or if they just lack permission to go take that step, like go pursue, like change your mind, go do the thing that you feel like you're called to go do. So if anybody's listening and they've got that, got that thought, they've got that thing that they know makes them come alive when they start talking about it, man, I hope they take permission from, uh, from your story right there. That's, that's incredible. It was interesting this morning um i have this like life business coach that i work with and you know we have a call once a month or so and he told me the story about this woman whose name is escaping me an australian doctor who sat at the bedside of people who were dying mm -hmm. and she came up with like the five things that they all basically said and one of them was like and i'm paraphrasing like i'm not 100 happy with the choices i made and the path that I've been on. Mm -hmm. and, and I talk to young athletes all the time. And here's how the dialogue goes. Okay, I'm thinking about coaching, but I don't really know. It's no money. Um, I know it's a grind and the hours. I'm not really sure, but I'm kind of interested. I say, okay, cool. So what's the other option? Well, I could work at this like real estate firm or investment firm or whatever. I say, okay, cool. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to make 50 and then 70 and then 110 and then 150. And then at 30 years old, after you're making 150K and you got a sweet car and a dope ass house and you, now you have real bills, you're going to really regret that you didn't try. So just try. Just try. Now, to those that try and then change, like myself, you also can find an element of challenge. At 40, I just turned 40, right? Like you assess your life, I think, at 40. I don't, uh, how old are you? 30. Okay, so you're 30. So at 30, you probably assessed your life. At 40, I remember my dad's 40th birthday. I was like, holy shit, like <laughs> I'm 40 now and I have two kids and I'm responsible one of them falls and has to go to the ER, which we did two weeks ago because he got a major gash on his chin, right? Oh, no. Baby. But my point is that like, I go back to the documentary Muse when Kobe Bryant went and met with um, one of the greatest uh, entrepreneurs of all time. And he's, he said, man, like, when did you start this company? And the guy said, uh, it's Giorgio Armani. And he goes, oh, I started at 40. Started at 40, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a reminder, like, at, at 15, we feel like life is going to end because we're ending high school. Yeah. At 22, we feel like it's just beginning, but we feel like we need to elevate to this thing. At 30, there's this bar, I felt like. Have I achieved it? At 40, it's like, oh, damn, like, these next 10 years are supposed to be my big money-making years but my kids are really fun. Do I want to grind all the time or do I want to like be around these kids? And look, those numbers are fluid, obviously, but I just think at the end of the day, like 
when you travel, you recognize that we're just specks on the earth. Like you're a big deal in your you know, financial job. You are. Like nobody in Dubai gives a rip about you. I'm the lead analyst of the Pac-12 Networks. Well, nobody probably in the state of Texas gives a rip about me, right? Or <laughs> Alabama or Auburn where you went, right? So it's, I think it's all perspective and context around it. And, it. and it comes down to like, did you live a life that you, that you could say you were happy in? Yes, amen. Especially as a parent, you know, to your point on modeling. A hundred percent. It's something that I think about all the time. It's something I've started to talk about more and more on the show. I think the, the further out you can zoom with your perspective to put yourself in the future, to then kind of look back on your life from that, from that vantage point and engineer your life that way. It sounds easy. It's so hard to do. I'm in the process of trying to do it myself now. I'm always trying to do that now, but it's so powerful. Cause then like, I just, I imagine myself, people think I'm crazy for this, but I think it's, and it's hard to do, but it's important. But I think it's, it's important to, if we can imagine ourselves on our deathbed and look, looking back and to your point, like the woman sitting on the edge of her bed, like, am I happy with the choices I made? Am I happy with, do I have regrets? Do I have things I wish I had done? And if you can put yourself in that position now and think about it, you can change a lot. There's a lot, hopefully, God willing, there's a lot of room between now and then, and we can, I guess, avoid those regrets now. So it's something that I think about a lot. The guy who married my wife and I, he's passed away um, since, but on his de- on his deathbed, oddly enough, he wrote this series of journals called Thoughts of a Dying Man. And one of his takeaway quotes was, it's, it's hard to die a good death if you haven't lived a good life. And I think that quote is so, so, so powerful. I think it's super relevant with the, with, with the story you're telling there. Yeah. I, I often get asked by college students, hey, what do you think, like, what's like a key to life? I'm like, dude, loaded. Like, how? I'm not Gandhi. I don't know. But um, I, I do believe this to be a fundamental truth. And I've seen it because I've been in 30 plus countries. And as you referenced earlier, like I often did pre-kids travel with one bag and one ball. And the whole thing is I would roll it out and that could cut through language barriers, cultural barriers, whatever it was. And I'm talking, I've done it from in the West Bank to the Democratic Republic of Congo, to Cuba, to everything in between. And I say that because I think in life, the only job we have is to give everything away, period. But the only way to give anything away is to gain something. So you gotta go seek it, right? Whether that's knowledge, whether that's books, whether that's relationships, whether that's insights, whether that's analysis, whatever, you have to go gain things so you can give them away. And I think that gets lost in like, oh, give it all away. You can't like, I'm watching Winning Time on HBO Max about the Lakers. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you can't die with your money. That's Jerry Buss. And he's right. You can't. But man, before you give it everything away, like you, you accumulate it. And let's not be hoarders, right? Let's not just accumulate stuff for purpose of stuff. Like, let's be purposeful. This mug for this reason. And here's why. And then, hey, I'm going to gift it away. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think that, that's, that's it. Bro, that's so strong. The word stewardship comes to mind for me. I'm like, I want to accumulate as much as I can so that I can use it in all these different ways and help all these different people. Like that's kind of the, like, that's the, you, you, you joked about the question, like, what's your why before it's something that we all talk about. It, it gets asked all the time, but I mean, what you just said right there, that's, that's, that's a why that I've got in the back of, I guess, in the back of my mind that always is, that's kind of like the, the light that doesn't go out. That's like the one thing that I know, like, if I'm not feeling it one day, if I'm, you know, just whatever it is, some days you just don't have it. Some days you don't feel like it. that's a, 
that's another one of the salt sticks that I can go to, like I referenced before. That's, that's big. Yeah. My dad would always say when I was a kid, and I never understood it till I got older, but he would say, knowledge is no burden to carry. Right, so I was failing eighth grade earth science, bombing. My mom was not happy. My dad came up to my room and he goes, hey, what's the problem? And I was like, dad, gymnosperms, I could care less. You know, I care earth science. I just want to play ball. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he said, I get it. He's like, but is it really going to kill you to learn it? Right. And I say that for us as fathers now and to those listening as dads, like knowledge is no burden to carry. So I think it's really easy to be buried in our brain or our mind or our phone. And I think there's opportunities everywhere that can pop up that can give us a lesson to teach our kids, mm -hmm. whether it's that model behavior of like eyes up, you know, chest mm -hmm. out. Yep. Like, like we were walking the other day with our son and he was, he said something about, um, he's like, man, like he gets car sick sometimes. And he's like, man, like he just had a donut because it was his birthday. So we went out for an early morning donut. He goes, oh, my stomach. I don't know. I ate it so fast. I think I might throw up. And I said, hey, flip it, Zane, flip it. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. He goes, dad, uh, my stomach, I'm, I'm good. My stomach's going to be good. I'm going to be good on this ride. And he's heard me say flip it a hundred times, thousands of times, mm -hmm. right? When I'm coaching or teaching, I'm bringing them out to practice or whatever it may be. And I didn't know if it would even work. It just came out of my mouth. And my wife was like, damn, flip it. And I was like, yeah, I would, that worked. I don't know, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I, I think if, I think it's, it'd be easy to kind of be buried into it's Sunday morning. What am I doing? And maybe not even hear him when he's saying it. Mm -hmm. And that happens to all of us at times, right? We got our own lives. We got stuff going on. We're independent souls as well. But I think, I think there's lessons everywhere, man. And like my dad reminds me, like knowledge is no burden to care. Like we can learn a ton. Shit, man, I'm learning about verbs again. I'm a first grader. <laughs> there you go. I'm yeah. stealing that, by the way. Flip it. That's, a, yeah. that's incredible. I, I, I love that, um, that thought process that, you know, I, I think is... I don't know if it's, if it's us as men, maybe this is just me. I don't know, but it seems like we have this tendency or I have this tendency to think like, there's gotta be this grand gesture for, you know, whether it's in the marriage or whether it's in, you know, raising your kids, like teaching them a lesson, like it's going to be this big premeditated like thing. We're going to do a big grand gesture and then it's all going to work out and go according to the plan. But I'm trying to make the flip to just realize like, it's really just showing up in the trenches. Like it's like the little Monday moments, like you said, like just driving in the car, your kid's about to puke his donut from the morning. Like, how, you know, how are we going to handle that? Like, that's what, to me, like, if you make those moments in your life, great and intentional and you're, you're present in those and you don't shrug those off. Like you said, like, you know, scrolling on your phone Sunday morning, whatever. I think that's the, to me, that's the, the best way I've made sense to really build a great life at home. Yeah. There's a great book, um, about parenting. It's called like, uh, it's something about like, not being a screaming parent or something like that. And there's a great line in it. And I tell it to our oldest, Zane, all the time. And the line is this, quote, I am not responsible for you. I am responsible to you. And I just think that's a brilliant line. And if you think about it as a parent, and the, and the book is awesome. Like the, the title will come to me before the end of the show. Um, and it often talks about like, sometimes we feel responsible for our kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Like whether they're, mm -hmm. you know, banging on the donut glass because they want to see them all or the ice cream parlor or whatever it is, or they're having a fit on their way to school, whatever it is. We're humans. We feel that versus like, hey, I'm responsible to you. Like if you don't make your bed, like, okay, 
But like my job is to teach you about consequences and that's one of your responsibilities. So you got docked an hour for your Saturday television or whatever it is. It's just yep. an example. Yep. And, and when I read that line, like my parenting life, like really flipped because it, it, it's such a good book because it, it really challenges the parent. And they're like, hey, it's not about you, dude. You know, and I think especially male dads, mm -hmm. right? For someone in the football space, I'm writing a book currently called Five Star QB. It hopefully is out this fall. And it's, it's all about the elite quarterback recruits. And there's a commonality among the majority that didn't quote unquote make it. And so they weren't happy because there was just too much pressure on them from their fathers. And the dads made it about them to a mm -hmm. large degree, whether it was intrinsically or very directly. And I go back to the line, I'm not responsible for you, I'm responsible to you. To you, to show you what it's like to be a man, a husband, a lover, a partner, a sibling, a, a learner, a teacher, right? A passenger, uh, a patron, like there's a million examples. Mm -hmm. I, just, I just think it's cool. And it, it opened up a whole new dialogue with, with him and I. That's awesome. That. Uh... That brings to mind you know, we're we're starting um, six and under baseball right now. There we go. But with my oldest, oh man, this is the first year where it's like not t-ball. Like we're actually keeping score, and oh man, it, it makes your the the topic of your book come to mind big time. You see, you know, there's some kids out there they're having a great time. Like some of them are hitting it, some of them aren't. Some of them are just being pounded by their by their dads. Like every single pitch, there's another instruction, and it's just overcorrection and. I think that's the, a great example just for, just for me selfishly in my own life. That's what I'm thinking about. Like, let's try to not be that dad, but it's funny. Yeah. Cause like at this age, I was, I was having a conversation with another coach and I was just like, the team that's going to win every one of these games is going to be the team with the kids. That, and this goes back to what we were talking about before. It's going to be the team with the kids that have the most fun and that actually want to come back and play tomorrow. They're five years old. Yeah. Like that's like, that's it. Rule number one, man, for you. Right. It's bleeding through everything that you do. And I think kids, I, I really believe they see that, right? Coaching now, like my kid would say, oh, my dad, you're, you're so strict in practice. And I said, yeah, I'm strict on two things, respect and school. Like, period, you got to respect the coach, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's me or somebody else. And I, I don't know, I, I think it's a tough balance. And I often wonder, like, we were at basketball practice last night. And like, most kids freeze when they get the ball in their hands. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine what's going through their head. Multiple voices are saying, I'm open, I'm open, I'm open. Hands and other bodies are in front of them. And then coaches are screaming to do things. And really, what I found is they just want to please their parent. So if you go and watch your kid's basketball game or baseball game or whatever, watch what happens after success. They always look to dad. I'd bet. Mm -hmm. Or mom, mm -hmm. right? After failure, same thing. So what changes? Are we celebrating process? Are we celebrating outcome? Right? An old coaching adage would be like at the end of the game, don't ask him, um, hey, uh, you guys won. Tell me about the game. You'd be like, hey, what did it feel like? Celebrate. And, what did, and you tap into those things, and then you get them to really share the reality around a loss and a win. And you know, even mm -hmm. Pete was amazing with that at SC. It was never about the game. We could care less. Winning was nice. But it was so much about just competing and the brilliance around striving together and competing together in practice, competing together in a game. That's why there, there really wasn't a lot of pressure felt. Even at the biggest moments, our guys always thrived, thrived. 
Mm -hmm. hammered into their heads every day around that concept. That's gold. There's so much gold in that. Gosh, that's so good. I mean, teaching the you know process of outcome. I've already, I think about this with, with my kids and I'm like, man, I, I don't care what you guys choose to do. I just care how you do it. Like I care not for the outcome, but the attitude you bring to it, how you treat your teammates. Like that's really like at the end of the day, that's really what's going to matter the most in their lives. That's what matters the most to me now. And I'm having to be conscious of that. So whether the, my son goes up in baseball, whether he hit, gets a hit, whether he strikes out, like you said, he's going to look to me like, am I going to be consistent? Am I going to be a rock there? That's for him. You know, I guess judging is not a word I like to use, but am I judging the right things? Am I praising the right things? It's, yeah. uh, and it's hard. Man, it's, it's hard, bro. It's so hard. God, yeah, like you're human, right? Like I'm still screaming when he hits the ball. Let's go. Nice. You know, yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's a real dance. And, and I, I think even now for me as a coach, like, you know, we're in a world and I don't know, I think we're out of the, like everybody gets a trophy world to a degree, like that stereotype has been hit so hard, but we're still in a world where it's like, kids love being individuals. They are individuals. And then we come together for team sports. It's almost like we try to take the individuality out of them. And it's all about the team. And, and I don't agree with that. Like, I think the individuals make the team and the blending of those individuals with the right sauce, the right additives, right? The right couple ingredients, that's what's magic. When people can be purely themselves, whether you're the quiet and shy six-year-old or you're the quiet and shy 26-year-old or the loud one, like, it doesn't matter. Like, you have to be comfortable performing as you versus on this team, we always look everybody in the eye. Looking somebody in the eye is a big deal for a six-year-old. On this team, we always do this. We all, we always are, are, I hope we're always just authentic. And it's the coach's job to, to nurture that, right? And I see that my kid is alpha, like dramatically <laughs> the alpha in the room. Okay. And him and other alphas clash. Yeah. All right, well, they got to work together. So what are we going to do? All right, you two are going to be throwing partners. Can you get to 100? Because you're both hyper competitive. 100 straight catches put the competitiveness into a challenge. And I, and I think I see that with youth coaching a lot of trying to strip the individuality out, individuality out because there's so much of that in today's society with social media, Instagram, TikTok, people being brands, kids talking about, oh my God, this video got a million views, dad. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that we need to kick back a minute and embrace the individuality and then find the ways to mold it. And that is what coaching is. And it's hard at the youth level because most coaches are just volunteers like trying to help out the community. Yep. But everybody can do it. Everybody can do it. Well, if you, uh, if you do decide to get back into coaching, we'll hire you to come coach the little league team over here, here man. Yeah. I'm in, man. <laughs> um, that's awesome. So as we, as we move into the, the last little bit of the interview here, I want to take a little pivot, ask you a couple questions, um, specifically about you. Um, so given what you do for a living, you've got a lot of visibility, right? So there's a lot of people that watch you, that know you, that look up to you, that see you on TV, hear you on the radio, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people I know that are looking at you and they're pro like, they probably have this thought like, man, this guy's got it right. He's charismatic. He's smart. He's articulate. Like he's just got it going on. He probably doesn't deal with the same stuff that I like. I couldn't do that. Right. So if, if given that, that framework, that that's how a lot of people will probably perceive you, is there anything that you may struggle with or find yourself constantly working on within yourself that may not be perceived in you know, the public eye? 
Oh yeah. I, I'd love to th think yes. I mean, I'm a pretty open guy. My, my vibe on social media is that like, you can find anything anyway. You could probably mm -hmm. find out my address if you, if you Googled hard enough or let, and I could probably find out yours mm -hmm. if I Googled hard enough. So I'm not in the world of like shielding and hiding, you know, I don't dramatically, you know, put it out there, but I'm pretty open, but I'm also pretty human, you know, like I've got ups and downs like everybody, you know, the pandemic was a challenge for all of us in this house, mm -hmm. right? We, my wife was pregnant. We bought a house. We both got furloughed. There was no college football season until whatever, November. Um, it's hard, you know, but there was beauty in it too, right? Beauty in like working together to just work together, right? Like we work in the same creative space in our house. Like we love that. So yeah, man, I, I've had dozens and dozens of challenges, right? I, I pitched a film the other day and I can remember walking into it being like, okay, like, I think my film's good enough in my heart, but in my head, I'm not Jimmy Chin. And that's, he just sold his last film to this company. I'm not Will Smith who's on the front page of their website. Like, why the hell are they going to buy this from me? And I had to course correct real quick. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, dude, you have to align your heart and your head and your mind. Like, so to me, like meditation has become like the strongest thing that I have. My wife and I, every morning, 545, we're up. We meditate for 45 minutes before the kids wow. get up. Right. To, to just be able to like walk into the day connected and like really connected to those two things. So, yeah, man, like I, I think like a lot of performers, there's um, not necessarily performance anxiety. I, I don't necessarily have that. Like I feel switched on when I when I go perform. But I think there's always like, you know, you, you worry, am I going to get bounced? Uh, who's the next guy? And, and I, you just have to work through that. And to me, the, the way I work through it is I breathe through it. Right. So I, I think I deal with the same stuff. Like I get asked all the time, do you ever, ever have a bad day? You're always so positive. And I love that question because I love that the vibe people get from me is positivity. But also the reality is, yeah, of course, I've got challenging times, but I think I'm good at processing them and getting to the root of them. And if you looked at my vision board over my uh, right shoulder here, the number one thing would say no pollution, meaning I'm not going to try to pollute my house. Right, so whatever's going on in my own personal life, in my own monkey mind, in my own professional mm -hmm. life, I'm going to work through it, right? So we do marriage counseling every couple months. We used to do it every week because I'm like, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't I train like that? And I got no problem sharing it. You know, my wife, I've never been more in love with anyone on planet Earth from day one to now. But it's like if I want to have a strong core, I got to do abs every day, right? Or at least a mm -hmm. couple times a week. And I think the same thing in parenting and marriages, like my wife and I, we will be up talking all night. Like I could tell you the amount of Netflix shows I've seen on one hand in the last two years. Not that that's not a, that's a bad thing, but with our lives, she's got her own company. I'm on my own hustle. We have to create the time to be like, yo, how you doing? Mm -hmm. Like my mom died in the pandemic. Like it was just her birthday, which happens to be the same day as her oldest son. We stayed up till midnight talking and celebrating her. And, you know, lighten the candle that you do in the Jewish tradition, right? And mm -hmm. light it when somebody passes away or on their birthday or on a, a momentous day uh, while celebrating our seven-year-old. So to me, it's like, yeah, bro, I could talk forever on the things I'm struggling on. But the point for your listeners might be processing it. I don't bury that shit. Like, no way. If you and I went out for a cup of coffee, like my friends would say, one of the first questions I'd ask you is like, yo, how's your marriage? Straight up, let's just talk about it. Like, yeah.
let's see what's up like what's the point let's let's go you know like we're both in life and life is fluid so let's let's be purposeful on it so i'm kind of rambling here but yeah i got issues like everybody but i think i can see them spot them identify them and work through them with the right tools rather efficiently yeah that's that's i love that approach that you have that like just because you have the thought like you were talking about the limiting beliefs or whatever it is that you don't just it, it doesn't stop there you don't have that thought and say oh i believe that like you have that thought and say well why am i thinking that how can i work through this thought you know how can i you know you've got the meditation practice in the morning you work through it you treat it like like the abs you treat it like a muscle that you want to grow that you can really improve upon over time so i love i love that approach i love the no pollution on the vision board I write something down similar every day. I write that I'm responsible for the, for the health, the, the spiritual, mental, and physical health for my family. I write that down every day. Um, so it's along the same lines. Um, so la last question for you, this has to do with the word legacy. Legacy is something that, you know, gets talked about a lot. I think it gets misconstrued a lot. Everybody talks kind of the opposite about what, than what we were talking about before saying, give it all away. You hear a lot about generational wealth. You hear a lot about, you know, whatever it is names on a building. But when I think about legacy, to me, I think about my time spent with the people that mean the most to me, and I think about what I'm leaving behind. So I think about the time that I get to spend with my kids. So God willing, you know, if I get to leave them behind on earth, I think about it as like the moments, the memories, the little lessons that they're going to, you know, maybe remember about me or have shared with me that they can then carry with them to live the rest of their life. So with all that, if I, if I turn that towards you and say, you know, what do you want your legacy to be with, with your two kids, what would you say to that? I've never really given that any thought to be straight up. I hope, and this is the foundation of our marriage and the foundation of how we raise kids. God, I, I hope and pray with everything in me that they would say, yep, I was seen and I was heard. Period. Period. And I hope everybody I interview in my job says, I was seen and I was heard. And I hope everybody behind the camera, the producers, the runners, the up and comers at 22, just volunteering, like I hope they would say Yogi saw me and heard me. And that's a big freaking deal. Because with that is, you know, you got to deal with conflict. Right? Like mm -hmm. our kid, you know, our, our oldest son, and we'll do it with our baby, I'm sure it'll happen. If we challenge him on something, let's just say, hey, I want you to stop doing that, or I didn't like that, or whatever it may be, he would say, well, you told me that I'm the boss of my body, or I, I have opinion, right? So mm -hmm. to me, like, we empower that. So you got to deal with that. Mm -hmm. You know, we always say, like, you can feel whatever you want in this house. You can say whatever you want in this house. You're going to deal with it, you know, you, good, bad, and different. Mm -hmm. So I hope, God, I pray I'm busting my ass and so is my wife to like, make sure our kids feel seen and heard. And if you looked at us on our wedding day in Bali, where we got married, my wife and I, the cornerstone of our vows was the phrase, I see you. And it began in a yoga class that morning, where the instructor had partners, or couples or whatever, sit across from each other, stare in each other's eyes, and repeat that simple sentence, I see you, I see you. And I can remember being there bawling as it happened, as, as was my wife. 
And I just think that's such a critical moment. Like I see you in your struggles. I see you in your triumphs. And as an athlete, I'm terrible at self-compassion. Hey, good job, Yoke. I don't say that. I bet you're the same way. Like you're gonna walk off this podcast and be like, that was badass, good job. B, like you did good, good, good work, right? But like, if we're not doing it to ourselves, how are they gonna see it? So I, I see you and I hear you, man, is, that's it for me. That's gold. And like you said right there at the end, modeling it for your kids too. That's huge. That's huge. It's awesome. Well, Yogi, thank you so much for making some time for us today. This has been awesome. Uh, such a treat to get to, get to have you on. Uh, where is the best place for people to find you, follow you, learn more about you? Okay, so two things. Uh, one, the book, it came to me. Scream Free Parenting is the book that I'd there highly we recommend to anybody. There we go. Get the audio book and just have it on loop. I've listened to it a few times already now and, you know, kids seven and two. Um, it'll help you. Uh, two, I got a kid's book coming out in August oh, that I nice. think your audience will dig, especially dads. Um, and it's based on our oldest, Zane. Um, it's called Finding Free Fun. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, you can find everything and anything, uh, you know, I'm at Yogi Roth on all social medias or yogiroth.com is my website kind of home base. But I'm pretty accessible as you found out. Mm -hmm. um, and anybody who wants to reach out, feel free. I hope, I hope this conversation was beneficial on some front. It was a blast on mine. So I appreciate it, man. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. Looking forward to the children's book. That's awesome. Uh, we'll get it, everything linked up in the show notes. So Yogi, thanks again for coming on, man. You got it, bro. All right, everybody. That's it. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, do me a huge favor and subscribe to the show or leave us a rating and review. We can't thank you enough for your support. Until next time, remember to love and lead from the front. See ya.